You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. Good morning, everyone. Uh, just to give you some context, if you don't know who those people are, Grady was an important part of our church when he was here as a student for many years. And now him and his wife, they're in a mission in the Philippines, uh, a place where many of you are familiar with. And we as a church, we are supporting them. So it's great to, to get an update from them and also keep praying for them and their mission there. And also I'm very excited, uh, to be here almost after, after almost three years since the last time that I preached here. Um, I think it was the second to last, uh, service we had in person before the lockdown. I was preaching that one. Uh, so it does feel like a long time ago. Um, one child and many haircuts later, <laughs> here I am again. So, uh, yeah, I'm just excited. And it's been a great series as well that I have the, the pleasure to wrap up. Uh, so just to give some context, if you're joining for the first time in this series, we are going through this counterculture series where we are uh, looking at the fruit of the Spirit from this text in Galatians that we are going to read once more. Um, and then we can go from there. So it's Galatians 5, verses 22 to 25. It reads, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So it's a long list of virtues, of Christian virtues, that we have to strive forward, the division of the person that God has for us. And it's countercultural because it's not our natural trajectory to go in that direction. We, we have a war within us that hinders us from progressing in that direction. And also we have influences and voices from the outside that want to shape us into a different kind of person, which is not what God has for us. And today, as you can imagine, being the last one, we're going to talk about self-control, especially self-control against or over-indulgence. So could you please turn to your neighbor and tell them what was the worst sin that you indulged this week? I'm kidding. Don't do that. I'm serious. Don't do that. Okay. I mean, the Bible is serious about confessing your sins to one another, but not during the sermon. Okay. So maybe after the sermon or during small group, feel free to do that. But you all thought of something. That's why you left, because you were nervous. Because you all thought of something that maybe you did this week or something that you might have done over and over. And this is Let's say the good thing about finishing with this one, it's because some of the other parts of the fruit of the Spirit, some struggle with more, like more with those than others. You know, you might not struggle with achieving all of those in a sense. But when we preach about self-control, we're preaching to everyone, including ourselves. We all have to deal with it. So I could bring a lot of, I could bring a lot of different illustrations and examples, but the best illustration is whatever thought came to your mind at that moment. Okay, so when I go on and speak about things that I'm going to speak, maybe have that in your mind. You know, what's the thing that you tend to indulge and regret? What are the things that you wish that God would reform in your life so that you stop doing? That's the best thing, that you, the best illustration that you can keep in mind as we go on. So, there's another thing that is really good about, you know, speaking about self-control as the last one. It's because we have this tension all throughout the series about these things being the fruit of the Spirit, something that God gives us, but also something that we have to strive forward, that we have to do something about it. And it seems like self-control is the best example because it is self-control, right? It's not God's control. It's self-control. 
it's something that it seems like it's up to us. And if we fail, it's because the self has failed, right? So how is it that God can give us uh, self-control, but we can still call it self-control? So what is self-control? Just to uh, be clear about what is it when we're speaking of, there are two kinds of self-control or two kinds of Greek words there in the Bible are translated as self-control. And the first one is enkrateia, that means self-restraint. Okay, this means the power of not doing something, the strength to not do something, like the strength to not check the World Cup score during the sermon. But if you do, please let me know. Especially if Poland is beating France, because beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But that aside, you all know what I mean, right? Not doing something. You know, you have to have sometimes the strength because you're tempted to do something and you don't do. We lack that sort of self-control when we act impulsively or when we act against our best reason, our best judgment, when we act and immediately regret. Um, this is the word that we've just read in this text. So in Galatians 5, the word self-control, I think, yeah, there is, there is the, the verse again. At the end of the list, the word for self-control is enkrateia, that idea of self-restraint. There is another Greek word also translated as self-control in the Bible. Sorry, this is kind of loose, so please bear with me. Hopefully this stays. Um, and that's the Greek word sophrosune, and that means temperance or self-discipline. And this is more about wanting the right things and doing the right things. It's the power to actually step up and do something or want something when it's hard to do something like that. It is the word, for example, that we read in the verse of 2 Timothy 1.7. Paul tells Timothy, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. And self-control there is that word sophrosune. And see how this is something that overcomes a reluctance, right? This word fear sometimes is translated as timidity or even cowardice. So whereas enkrate is about holding back, not doing something, Sophrosune is actually stepping up and acting when it's hard to do so, when there is something tempting us to not do something. So it's good to have these two in mind because we might struggle differently with these two kinds of self-controls uh, at different times in our lives or in situations. But how do we grow in self-control? That seems to be the key question. How can we grow? Is it just about praying and fasting and hoping that one day we wake up a completely different person that can hold back from doing things or step up and act when we should? Or do we just, you know, put our minds to it and exert extreme willpower and do it for ourselves? Um, it's neither of those things. It's collaborating with God and creating the conditions where God can, you know, act in our lives. Richard has shared this quote many times during the sermon, the series, and I want to share it once more uh, from Ruth Haley Barton. And she says, I cannot transform myself or anyone else for that matter, what I can do is create the conditions in which spiritual transformation can take place by developing and maintaining a rhythm of spiritual practices that keep me open and available to God. So without, without God, any of the things that I'm going to say is impossible, but he doesn't want to do it for us while we just watch. We are working with God. He's acting in us as we act as well. So I'm going to do something that I've never done before. I'm going to share a list of steps. Okay, I think it's kind of dangerous because it might sound like formulaic, right? Like if you just did the steps, you know, uh, you will, you know, be have self-control in 14 days or something like a, you know, clickbaity title that you see on YouTube, you know, like how to have self-control 
in 30 days or something like that. That's not the idea, okay? It's not a recipe that if you just go through, you have self-control. But the thing is that self-control is not only about strength. I think it's mostly about wisdom. And what is the wisdom that God gives us in his scripture that can help us thrive and walk towards a life of greater self-control? And we see that it comes from him. So I'm going to share a few steps, but it might be just that you need to focus on one or two of those things. Something that uh, God might be telling you to think about, pray about, and act on in the next coming days or weeks. And these are all things that have helped me as well in my journey towards, you know, this spirit, uh, towards a spirit-filled life of greater self-control that I'm sure that can help you as well. So the first thing about self-control is that you have to be honest about your desires because this is where self-control starts. Okay, so there's something that you need to know about me. If I could only hate one thing in the world, I don't know why I would hate anything, but like if I had to choose one thing, it would be prunes. Okay, prunes are terrible. I don't know who came up with that idea. But if you look at prunes besides a plum, there is no way that you don't believe in sin. Okay, <laughs> it looks like corruption. It looks like sin and it tastes like sin. So I don't know how people can put up with them or enjoy prunes. But it's important that you know that about me. Because imagine that one day maybe we go to the same party and halfway through the party you see myself in the corner of that party stuffing myself with prunes. And you ask me, Lucas, I thought you hated prunes. Why are you eating prunes now? And I told you, oh, it's because I lack self-control. So every now and then I do something that I don't want to. I mean, you, of course you would think that I was joking. Like, it makes no sense. That's not what we mean by self-control. That we do things that we don't want. But we do things that we don't want to want. Okay, so we need to be careful. We need to be honest. Because when we lack self-control, we indulge in something. We have to admit there's something in us that really wants that. Okay, maybe we don't want to admit. Maybe we don't want to acknowledge. But there is part of us that wants that thing. But we might not want to want that thing. So what do we need to do? We need to keep our hearts. And that's what Proverbs tells us. Keep your heart or guard your heart for everything that you do flows from it. So self-control begins by having a very honest look at what's going on in your heart. And that's the cool thing about it, that you can guard it. You can do something about it. You're not completely passive. You're not completely at the mercy of your desires. What God is telling you is that there is something that you can do about it. You can want desires and you cannot want desires. That means you can have desires about desires. Like, I want this desire in my life and this desire that I currently have, I don't want. So this is step two. Be honest about what you want to want and what you don't want to want. And it seems like it's easy, right? Like, if you're indulging something, maybe you think, oh, yes, I would love not to have that desire in my life. Is it really the case? There is a very interesting book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. It's a work of fiction. And in this book, he goes through a series of characters that reach the entrance of heaven. And they are deciding whether they go, want to go into heaven or not. It's a book of fiction. Don't look into it for like theology about heaven. But it's very interesting because he uses that as a way to study a lot of our experiences as human beings. And one of those characters is a man who has a pet lizard in his shoulder. And that lizard is the lust that he has in his life. And he's clearly enslaved by that lizard. That lizard really makes his life miserable. And then at the entrance of heaven, there is an angel that offers to kill the lizard for the man. And he says, like, if you want, I can kill it now. And the man is like, maybe not kill it. Maybe like, can we just tame it? Can we let go of it gradually? 
And then he goes through this long dialogue with the angel because he's reluctant to let go because he thinks that his life will be, maybe he won't even survive losing that lizard in his life, that craving. Sometimes we are more attached to the craving itself than to the things that we think we crave. That is very clear if you read anything about the lives of people who are addicted to gambling, that actually winning, like in a slot machine, is something that they doesn't feel good. What they like is the chase, is the being there, is the habits, the repetition, is pursuing it. And we have to be honest, sometimes we all, like, all act like that. We may think and say out loud that, yeah, my life would be better if I didn't indulge in that thing that you thought at the beginning of the sermon. But if you think if you really would like to live a life where that desire is not even part of your life, you might be reluctant to let that go. Now, um, I'm not going to, I'm going to tell you the guy that lets the angel kills the lizard because it's cool what happens next. After the lizard dies, it becomes something beautiful. It becomes a beautiful animal. And this is something that God can do for us. If we allow our cravings, our pet cravings to die, maybe God will transform it. But we need to be, we need to allow him to kill it. We need to be okay with God taking away that craving, that pursuit, that addiction from our lives. Um, this is, I think, part of the meaning of what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 25. Whoever wants to save their lives, you know, and their cravings and desires, their habits, their addictions, will lose it. But if you lose it for his sake, if you allow God to take it everything away, you will find life there. So we need to be honest about the things that we want to want and maybe really let God take care of things and remove, at least temporarily, desires from our lives completely. But it's not only about removing things from our lives, it's also about having a picture of what right desire looks like. What is it that we should be looking or wanting in the first place? Maybe you know, okay, these things I really don't want to want, these desires I really don't want in my life. But what should I want instead? What are the things that I should be loving and pursuing? Because it is a greater love for something that stops us sometimes from indulging in other things. Let's say if you are an athlete, you might love food, but you will let go you know, of indulging in food because you love your performance in the field even more. So you, it's, it's a trade-off. You're not going to do it. Or maybe you love, love lashing out on people and, let your, you know, and speaking your mind. But you're not, you don't do that with your boss because you love your career even more. So there is, you know, loves in our lives that stop us from indulging in other loves. So what is it that God calls us to want? This is the very important question. I love this quote by James Smith. He says, Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his. To want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is on it, all in all, a vision encapsulated by the shorthand, the kingdom of God. So that's why all these steps have to do with desire, because God wants to reform our desires so that we desire and love and want the things that he desires and loves and wants. What are these things? This is basically what we've been going over all throughout this, uh, this series and, and, and all the other sermons. It's the life that God calls us to live. It's the life of the fruit of the Spirit is following God's call. It's being Christ's presence in the world. It's to, be, to live a life that is oriented. It's directed towards God. It's to live by love, by faith, and by hope. All these things are the things that God has called us to, the things that should be filling our lives. And there is one thing about important about indulgence when we think about the things that we should be desiring. Something always suffers when we indulge, or someone. 
So anytime that we indulge in anything, they deserve the name of indulgence. We are loving something too little. There is something in our life that is apparently too easy to sacrifice when we indulge. So maybe that's the question that you need to ask yourself. What sacrifices are too easy for you to make when you indulge? What is the love that needs to increase in your life? So you stop sacrificing that something or that someone so that you can indulge in whatever you do. But how do we create desires? How, how do we increase the desires in our lives? You know, there is a very famous sermon. I think I still agree with it. I think it's a great sermon. Maybe you've heard about it. It's one by Thomas Chalmers called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Um, and it says that like our heart is so constituted that for us to displace a love is to replace it with a greater love. Is it still working? Okay, because it's all over the place. But thank you for bearing with me. Um, but the first time that I heard about the, the sermon and I heard the quote, I thought that, you know, it was just up to me to wake up one day and decide, okay, I'm going to love something more. And that will replace everything, right? It's just willpower. From now on, I will love this thing. I will love God. I will love my neighbor. I will love doing this or that. I will love exercising. That never worked. I was never able to love exercising. So, but how do we do it? So, like, how do we create this, this new desires? If, you know, the call of God is the call to align our desires with His, how do we do this? It's not by desiring desires alone. It's about paying attention to the things that we do in our lives. Uh, James Smith, to bring him up again, I think puts it very well. He says, We learn to love then not by acquiring information about what we should love, but rather through practices that form the habits how we love. So it's not about like, okay, I should, I should love this. So from now on, I will love it. And that's it. No, it's about paying attention to what you're doing and how the things that you do shape the loves that you have. So the steps for onwards would be about the things that we do, about the practices that we engage uh, in life. So step four is to look at the habits, the practices, the liturgies of your life. Things like, what is the first thing that you do in the morning? What's the last thing that you do before bed? What do, what do you do while you eat? How do you rest from, you know, your work at the end of the day? What are the things that you see, that you watch, that you hear, that you listen to every day? Those things are shaping the things that you want. They are shaping your desires, your habits, and everything that you feed your soul are shaping the things that you want. So thinking again about the thing that you indulge in, right? From that first illustration that came to your mind. I didn't put it there. You thought about it yourself. What practices that you do daily or weekly are feeding those desires? Or the things that you know are putting seeds, are giving just a little more food, a little more like nutrients for that to keep going or to keep growing in your life. Maybe you need to change the things that you do in your life and stop feeding those desires. Step five is very similar. It's being honest about the things that influence you. We are always under the influence of things in life, right? We are surrounded by things, by voices, by all sorts of, of influences in life. So what is influencing you? It's not about what's sin and what's not sin. That's what got the church in Corinthians caught up. And Paul had to say this to them. He was quoting them, saying, all things are lawful to me. They were right in saying that. Because, you know, in Christ we have a freedom that we are not under the Mosaic law anymore. But then Paul has to add, but remember, not all things are helpful. Well, all things are lawful to me, he says, 
but I will not be dominated by anything. So if you want a life of self-control, it's not about figuring out where, where are the lines of sin and not sin and think, well, if I can keep to this side of the line, then I'm under self-control. If I cross the line, of course, I failed. I have to try it better. I have to pray for God that he will help me. It's about where things are helping you and where things are hindering you. It's about the things that are trying to dominate you. And even if they are not sin, maybe you don't want them in your life. And that's it. That's what Paul is saying. The question of whether it's a sin or not, it's besides the point now. What you should be asking about the things that you want to admit in your life, the things that you want to abandon in your life, is, is this helping me walk towards the life God has for me? Or is this hindering me? Is this maybe sending me in a different path? Is this something that could be a force of domination in my life? Could I be too attached to this? Could I be bonded to this in a way that I could become a slave to this instead of being a servant of God? Maybe it's not a sin, but it's an influence that you might not want to have in your life. You know, it could be a TV show that you watch, a social media feed that you follow, a YouTube channel that you subscribe to. It could be a simple thing like a trivial indulgence that you have in your life. Maybe those things are not sin. I, I don't want to tell you that you know, this kind of music is a sin or that TV show is a sin or doing this in the internet is a sin or not. Ask yourself, is this something that threatens to dominate your life, to dominate your thoughts, you know, your daydreaming? Maybe it's something that, as good as it is, you might not want in your life because it's not contributing to what God has for you. It is extremely practical. You know, like one thing that has brought me a lot of freedom is to install some browser plugins in my computer that gets rid of ads. You know, you could do that. It's very simple. Ad blocker, it's called. Like, there are many plugins. Life is a lot easier because you stop being bombarded by things that are trying to distract you and put desires in you that you might not want to want. You know, my wife loves the plugin that she has because she still has a Facebook account. I've got rid of mine. It's fine. Uh, if you have yours, I'm not judging you. But she really enjoyed the plugin that she has uh, that blocks the feed. You know, so there is no feed in Facebook. Like you can use the messenger, the marketplace, the groups, but you don't see feeds anymore. And she found greater freedom having that. One that I really love is the one that blocks all suggestions from YouTube. So there are no recommendation bars. There is no feed. Nothing's being suggested at the end of the video. So I only watch the things that I really look for, not the things that, you know, YouTube is trying to make me watch. And then you may be thinking, but Lucas, that's not spiritual enough. I thought we had to pray and fast more. You know, I thought it had to be supernatural. And now you're telling me that the path to life to greater self-control is about like browser plugins. It is partly that because Christ is that practical. He told us in Matthew 6, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. And if the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Isn't that practical? Careful with the things that you see, because you're feeding your soul with something. It's that simple. It's the wisdom that Christ gave us. Curate the things that you see every day. So that's why a lot of people have found freedom after they delete their social media account. Again, not a sin to have a social media account. Not telling that you should do that. But some people find greater freedom in that way because you're feeding other things or less things or things that do not conform to the life that you want daily to yourselves through your eyes christ is practical so we shouldn't be over spiritual when things when christ is telling us just make a practical step 
curate the things that you see, that you hear, that you listen, that you watch, the channels that you subscribe to, the social media that you have, the ads that you watch, all these practices of life, they all contribute to the desires that you have and the desires that will have that you have will shape the person that you are. It's that practical. Step six is to focus on the small battles because sometimes we think that self-control is about the big set piece battles, like when huge armies clash against one another, when it's actually about the small ones. We think that, you know, self-control is what we show when we are, you know, like in the, in the grasp of, in the grips of temptation and it's really strong and we're about to do it and then we overcome it, you know, like that big, like, whoa, I overcame the, that thing. That was a big, you know, moment of self-control. Self-control happens more often than not in the small battles. It's about everything that came before that big battle that maybe doesn't make even the, ba the battle take place in the first place. C.S. Lewis, I think, puts it best uh, uh, than anyone. And he uses more of like a, a war illustration. He wrote this during the Second World War. So this was very much um, in the minds of people. But I think it will be clear enough what he says. He says, good and evil. Both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions you and my, I make every day, <clears throat> excuse me, are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few moment, months later you may be able to go on to victories you've never dreamed of. An apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or a railway line or bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. It's not about, you know, the big moments of temptation. It's about all the small ones that lead to that one. You know, it's sometimes the TV show that you watch or like the quick tweet that you send, you know, to vent your anger or the small bet that you place, you know, because it's just like just a dollar. But for you, maybe that is like a strategic point that will keep feeding a desire that will go to, you know, become a big battle. And then you think, oh, I don't have self-control because I didn't win the big battle when you could have exercised that in the small battle. And that's what God helps us to do. It's not that we need to overcome these small battles alone. He helps us. But we need to understand that those are important and strategic battles to be won as well. What you do today will define what you will want to do tomorrow. It's a very important principle to remember. Whatever you do today will define, will shape the things that you will want to do tomorrow. So be careful with what you do today, because those things will define your future desires. Step seven. There are a lot of them. Maybe I need to make two YouTube videos, even more clickbaity. Um, step seven. I'm almost done. Be radical about the life that you want to live. Okay? Be radical about those small battles. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 5, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. But thank God we've blunted his words by saying, oh, it's hyperbole. You know, it's just rhetorical. So we like, we don't have to take him that seriously. And in a sense, of course, it is hyperbole. Because if you cut your right hand, you can still sin with your left. If you, you know, throw off your right eye, you're very much capable of sinning with your left. So he's not speaking necessarily that that will solve the issue. The point that we cannot miss is that the consequences of sin are much worse than letting go of the things that cause it in our lives. So be radical about it. Again, there are a lot of things in our lives that are not even sinful. But if they send us astray from the life that God has for us, are we really going to miss out those things that much 
Or are we going to miss out the life that God has for us even more? It's that simple. That's the point of the parable. Think about the trade-off. Why are you letting go when you let go of the craving that is so important to you? But think about what you're letting go when you do not follow God's call and the vision that he has for your life. So be radical about these small battles, these small solutions, these small practical steps. Jesus calls us to do so. Now, this is the second to last step before I get to the last one. I know it's, it can sound like a lot, but worst of all, it sounds like it's something that you just have to do on your own, right? So if you do these seven steps to victory in 14 days, uh, at the end of it, if you find yourself with greater self-control, was it God doing or you doing it? It feels like you deserved it, right? Like you just did it. Like what's, what's God to do with anything of it? I just shared like a nice recipe that if you follow, you know, you can credit me later and like, you know, I helped you. Uh, maybe I should become a, like a motivational speaker or something. Uh, help people, uh, write bestsellers, help people do that for their own. It seems like self-help is just go and do it. And then you have self-control. And what's the point of calling this a fruit of the spirit or something that God gives us? Unless, I mean, that would be the case unless we forget, unless we remember, sorry, step eight, which is realizing that every step of this way is only possible in Christ. Any of these small battles, small changes, small actions are only possible because of Jesus Christ and what he did for us. First of all, it is because of Christ that we can be honest and vulnerable before God. We can really be like uh, undress our souls before God and say, this is the worst that I have in my life, God. And I know that you still love me. That's how, that's why we can do it in the first place. We wouldn't be able to take step one if we didn't know how much God loves us. And we know that he loves us because of what Christ did on the cross and what he promised us. Promised us. So if we can be honest and vulnerable before God to take that first step and say, these are desires that are going on in my life, God. Can you please reform my life starting here? We can do so because Christ made that possible. It's only because of Christ that we can know what a life of right desire looks like. He gave us that life. He gave us the, the, the vision. He was the role model. He calls us, each one of us, uniquely in our circumstances, the people who, that he made us to be. He calls us to live a life that he has for us. He is the one who gives us the picture of this is the person that I want to become. This is the person that God wants me to become. It's not only about leaving things behind, but taking up the call. And the things that he gave us. It is a yoke and it is a burden. But it's a light one. It's an easy one. But it's something to take up. It's something that we can. And we know that we have to take up. Because of what Christ did for us. And taught us. And accomplished at the cross. It's only because of Christ. That we can let go of those things. That are, seem so vital to us. Like I don't know what life would be. If I completely gave up on that thing. It would be fine. Because of Christ. He will be there for you. He will pick you up. He will transform you. He will transform your desires. You can let go. You can allow him to kill all that you have in your life to make something beautiful replace those things. It's only because of Christ that we have the power of God to overcome sin, even in the smallest battles. It's because of the spirit that he gave us. After he ascended, he gave the the church his spirit, which is power. You know, like in the in that verse of Second Timothy, he says that he didn't give us a, uh, a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. That power 
In the Greek is the word dynamos, you know, where we get the words dynamic and dynamite from. It is sheer power that he gives us. But not only to win the big set-piece battles, all the small ones, we have to rely on him every step of the way. Not only when things go beyond our control, even when things seem under control, we have, we have to rely on him. And we can only be victorious because Christ overcame the world before us. But most importantly, because of Christ, we don't need to despair when we fail. We don't need to despair when we fail. Because fail we have and fail we will do it again. But we don't need to despair. We don't need to be afraid that this time God is done with us. That he's lost his patience with us. That maybe he will give up on us because this, I mean, this was the last one, right? This was the straw that broke the camel's back. We don't need to ever have that fear. He's a patient God. He's a loving God that knows our worst and loves us still and loves us to death, literally. He died for you knowing everything that you've ever done and everything that you still are going to do. And he loves you. So that's why we can keep doing it because we know that we're still loved by him. So it is because of Christ that we can keep striving, not out of fear, but out of love for him. Not because we're afraid of the stick, but because we love what the God has for us. And we are grateful for what he has done for us. That's the motivation for us to, you know, God, I'm going to do differently now. I'm, gonna, I'm going to do it with you. And now on, I'm going to trust you that my life will be, you know, will show greater self-control because I love you. After, the, after everything you've done for me, I want to do this for you. You know, it's not out of fear, out of condemnation, but out of love for God. It's only because of Christ that we can live the life that God has for us, because Christ is that life. That life is to be found in him. That freedom is to be found in him. So, you know, at the beginning I spoke of, you know, creating the, the, the right conditions for the fruit to grow. Christ made, made those conditions possible. And it's with him that we do those things, that we even create the conditions where he can give us the fruit of the Spirit. So since it is him who does who does this, who creates the conditions, who allows us and gives us the power to take all these steps and live a life of greater self-control, then let's lean on him. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for everything that you've done for us because you won the victory that we could not have won, Lord. So we pray, Lord, that we'll see even greater victories to come that, Lord, in days' time or weeks' time or in a month's time, Lord, we'll see things that we've never hoped for, Lord. Victories over temptations and over indulgences, Lord, that we know that have come from you. From the wisdom that you give us, Lord. From the power to overcome sin, to overcome fear and timidity, Lord. That we'll see you reform who we are, the things that we want, the things that we do, Lord. So that we'll live a life of freedom. A life of joy, Lord, knowing that whatever happens, you love us, that you've died for us, Lord, but that you have something more beautiful, Lord, for us in store than we are living today. And we trust you, Lord. We trust you, not our strength and our wisdom, but the strength that comes from you and the wisdom that comes from on high and the wisdom that comes through your word, Lord. We trust you and your truth to deliver us and to give us, Lord, the life of freedom that you promised us in the name of You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.